Welcome to another episode of Victory, the podcast. I'm Doug Allen. I'm Kevin Dillon. Victory! Cheers to that. I am excited tonight. We have a comedy legend and honestly a guy who really helped save my life. Larry Charles is really a comedy legend who's worked on some of the greatest shows ever. Seinfeld, Mad About You. And he's made some of the most successful comedy movies ever. Three of them with Sasha Baron Cohen that he directed. And he's also worked with Bob Dylan and directed Mastin Anonymous and with Bill Maher doing an amazing movie that if you haven't seen Religious, you should see immediately because it's fantastic. But And on a little show called Curb Your Enthusiasm. Oh, I, yeah. Can Jesus, that? Did I leave Curb? <laughs> <laughs> Only my favorite show, by the way. But, uh, you know, and by the way, how Entourage all started, I don't even know if Larry knows this, but I wrote a Curb Your Enthusiasm spec and sent it to Lev, who was my manager. And he was like, wow, I guess you can write. So anyway, that's how the whole show started. <laughs> so Larry, most importantly, though, forgetting all your amazing credits, my life, the reason you're most important is because you really were a lifesaver to me. When the show started, I was asked to hire some television writers. I didn't know anybody. I hired Rob Weiss, who was my friend from high school, who is great, but like me, had no idea what he was doing. And we basically used to scream at each other till four o'clock in the morning every night trying to figure out the show. And HBO said, Larry Charles is interested in A, dealing with you guys and B, helping you elevate this show to a level that might actually make people watch it. So <laughs> we got Larry in and, and you know, I want to talk about all of your stuff in your career, but let's start with some of the Entourage stuff. And, and if you remember when you first got that pilot, what made you think you wanted to get involved with this? Well, exactly. It was the pilot mm -hmm. I thought you captured immediately in the pilot. This very, very unique subculture of people from New York who transplanted out here, trying to find their way, buddies, but with that kind of cutting edge humor that you only see in New York. As soon as you get out of New York, people just think you're insane, you know, when you talk that way. But the truth is, that is how you show love in New York City, you know, whether it's Long Island, whether it's Brooklyn, whether it's Queens or Bronx or Staten Island. Tough, that, tough is, love. that is a communication form that connects people, strangely enough. And I connected to that. I really did. I grew up that way with, you know, friends that I was so tight with. But you talk to each other as if, you know, an outside person would completely misinterpret. And I thought that, wow, that's a unique voice that I hadn't seen in any kind of TV show. And I thought you really captured it, you know, and you captured the L.A., the alienation and the desires of L.A. also, I think, was one of the first things that was ever called, like, aspirational, actually. Yeah. You know? And I thought, I thought this is great. And they, they said, you know, we want to uh, do, we do a couple of scenes, you know? And, uh, but I thought this show has, and they, I don't think, and look, Carolyn and all those people were very cool and fantastic, but I'm not sure they really got what this was. Oh, no, they definitely didn't. Chris did. Chris definitely got it. Everyone else is like, yeah. all right, we'll give it a shot. It doesn't cost that much money, and uh, we'll kill Larry and make him work on two shows at the same time. <laughs> right, right. But, For those you know, of you I at home. it was worth it, though. I felt it was worth it because I connected so much to the material, to the, to the whole milieu of that world that I felt like I could help make this great. And by you the know, way, all of that plays into the show because we're sitting here with when the show is is in my head, and obviously Mark Wahlberg let me switch it from Boston to New York and really kind of bring in my experiences. But we have a room here with Kevin Connolly, grew up 15 minutes from me. Kevin Dillon grew up 30 minutes from me. And you were born in Brooklyn and raised in Brooklyn, correct? And, and yes. I, I was born in Brooklyn and then raised on Long Island. But we really are, and Jerry as well, and Adrian are real New Yorkers through and through. And I think all of that comes out 
in the show. And Kev, what were you saying over there? Well, I was going to say for people listening, Chris Albrecht, who is the head of HBO, greenlit Sex and the City. Sopranos. The Sopranos, Entourage. Uh, was he obviously curbed? curbed? I mean, yeah. like Chris he was, Albrecht. He was actually Larry David's agent originally. Oh, he was uh-huh. the bartender uh-huh. at the improv. That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And by well, the way, I got when, to know all those seminal comedians. And when this show started, when Andre started, Chris Albrecht was like the gangster. We were all, not you, Larry, we were all scared to death to even talk to the guy to say anything. But he wrong. was totally cool. He was the best. Yeah. And he's the reason, yeah. the reason yeah. we got here. And he probably was the reason we got Larry. And Larry ultimately, which we'll get into, was the reason we got Larry David on the show and Val Kilmer. One of the things that you had, Doug, that I felt Larry David had, and I, I feel very few other people had, is a very self-assured, confident voice. Very raw at that time and would be refined, but you definitely had a voice and I also connected to that. When Seinfeld first started, there was this whole thought of like, who's going to relate to these four New Yorkers? You know, and they're Jewish and they're, you know, who's going to... Re- right. Well, everybody related to it. Yeah. You know, around the world, everybody relates to it. I have been in the Middle East and met people who go, my friend is just like Kramer. <laughs> right. You know, right. that happens, you yeah. know. And the same thing with this show. You created characters and voices and, and very distinctive voices and yet connected voices that made the show very unique in the flavor of it and the tone of it because that voice was very special. And most shows are very, very generic. And this show very much wasn't. And maybe that was Chris's insight as well. This had a special flavor that nothing else had. And you see how many pale comparisons, how how many pale imitations Mm. there have been trying to capture that flavor. But they can't capture that writing and they can't capture that acting. And that's the difference between Entourage and those other shows. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And on that vein, though, I I got a question because I know... One, you're very politically active. Number two, you have strong opinions about this thing. And this really was when I watched the show back now because I hadn't watched it in years. There's stuff now that, you know, it does. It makes you blush a little bit and you go, wow. But it was authentic to its time and its place. And my question to you is, it was a different world 20 years ago, 30 years ago and 40 years ago. So what's your feeling on that? Well, I've done obviously a lot of thinking about this and a lot of my work, both with you and elsewhere, uh, uh, definitely falls into that category. And what I, the conclusion I drew was ultimately we tend to think everything's always going to be the same. You know what I mean? So we don't realize that all these pop culture things, whether it's Seinfeld or Entourage or anything really, and you know, the, the Star Wars, we think of them as these like massive things, and they are within their time frame, but things constantly change. And so I think what's happening right now is there is kind of a change going on in the culture, and it's like an evolution, and in evolution, a lot of bad shit happens, you know? Right, right. It's like maybe on the other side, it'll turn into something good. But in the meantime, there's going to be a churning about what's funny, you know, what's not funny, what's proper, what's, what's, uh, you know, politically incorrect. Comedy is like the country, you know, it's completely fragmented. If you like Louis C.K., you can't like Hannah Gatsby. And it's like, it's very hard for these worlds to coexist. That's the battle. Can they figure out a way to synthesize it to something better? Or is it just a, a kind of a symbol of the complete breakdown? That was an amazing thing when Larry came on the show because what basically would happen is I would either write something and hand it to Larry or Rob and go, you know what, 
Like we're going to collaborate. We're going to do whatever, write whatever you want. And ultimately I have to say what I think, but you know, go where you want. And Larry, who is probably a little darker than me and I am dark, but you would push things to an envelope. And I think what's interesting about that, and I've heard the Zucker brothers who made some of the best comedies of all time that you might look at some stuff now and go, whoa, I don't know if I can take that. But I listened to them talk about how they would push each other. And Larry did. Larry would push us to go to the max. And sometimes you go too far and sometimes you find comedy gold. And that's the fine line that I think works. And Larry was a guy, you got to understand, I watched a man, he would come in, he would write a script on a cocktail napkin in an hour. And I would go, and if I said, I don't know if I liked it, he'd write another one. And you'd go, this is unbelievable. And I remember the day, Larry, episode three, which I really think, I love the first two episodes looking back now, but episode three, which which I don't even know who's credited on it, but Larry had a, had a major, major hand on that episode. The first time I saw that cut, I was like, this show is elevated to mm-hmm. another level. But the real story behind it, which I don't know if you remember or not, Larry wrote a draft that Rob Weiss and I, who were nervous every time we get a draft, what if we don't like something? How do you tell Larry Charles? Again, doesn't mean it's not great and that it wouldn't have been better. But how do you say, I don't like this? Larry wrote a draft. Rob and I sat in our office and read it. And we both, who are not very emotional guys, we got emotional. Do you remember this draft? It was about drama's fiance and the whole thing. (laughs) And do you remember what happened with HBO? No, no, I don't think so. HBO almost shut down the show. They said, we don't (laughs) want this heart. We want fun. We want this and we want that. And what we ultimately came up with in the episode was the heart between the guys. And it still had that same vibe and that amazing ending as Kevin knows the the great fucking night. Oh, yeah. So uh, I just wondered yeah. if, if you remembered that and, and how many drafts we kind of went through of everything. Well, I remember that thinking that, again, we talked about it a minute ago, that HBO really wasn't getting the scope and the breadth of the show. You know, what the show, to me, this had like epic, and, and really it did that first season, it kind of like builds, it's like an epic movie into its, onto itself, you know? And I think drawing on the acting talent, drawing on the writing talent and maximizing it, you know, squeezing everything out. Everybody left everything on the table on that show. You know, that is something that I really do appreciate as a work ethic and it paid off, you know, and I think they didn't realize that, you know, how, how valuable Jeremy could be. You know, they didn't realize right. the sort of arc yeah. that, that Kevin's and Adrian and Jerry could have on a show like this, you know? Do you remember the and battles they didn't want Jeremy on the poster? Oh, God, I they didn't want that. Jer- I tell people that all the time. Well, you know? Jer- Jer- well Jeremy was like, they're like, he so- looks too old. He's like, I'm two years younger than Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> we're the same age. We're the same age. You know, listen, so Larry, uh, you know, we were, I was saying too, and I'm curious, Kev, if you agree, like, you know, with regards to Doug, I think Doug, you know, we built up some trust, but I think in that first year, we were all a little nervous and the trust was to come later. But in that first year, when Larry said it was going to be okay, it was going to be okay. Yeah. Dylan, did you feel that? Well, you know, I always thought the show was going to move on. So I, I, I believed in this show too. So I knew it had legs and I knew it was going to uh, get picked up for a second season. So yeah, I mean, it was always great to hear if Larry said, this is looking good. That's well, we had, well, well, we had Rob Weiss who told me, because I listen, I was a fucking wreck, not sleeping. I was just didn't know what I was doing and how you come up an arc for a season or whether it's supposed to be an arc or whether I, and I don't know if this is true or not, but it feels like Seinfeld was one of the first comedies that was a real comedy, but started doing little arcs in it as opposed to just episodes that were self-contained and you can watch any of yeah. them. 
So no one knew what this was going to be, but for whatever reason, I started writing it as a continuation story. And unlike a guy like Larry or David Simon, I really wasn't capable of doing that except for in the crazy, insane process I had. But the difference was Rob Weiss, who was like my brother, he used to say, because I'm like, we got to get someone in here who can just just figure this all out. And he would always say, nobody's going to save you, Dougie, every day. Nobody's coming <laughs> to save you. And Larry would sit there. What do you call those, Larry, those beads? That, uh, <laughs> right. Larry would, yes, right. would, would rub his beads yes. and just going to be like, we're going to be fine. And it was, a, it was an amazing <laughs> calming influence. So what did you see? Did you think we were out of our fucking minds or what? Well, I think, again, growing up in Brooklyn, your dynamic, which, again, was very intense, but it wasn't something <laughs> that I, I wasn't used to. You know what right. I mean? Yeah. I, I basically grew up with people yelling and screaming at each other. You know, and, and even with Larry David, you know, the, like we're loud, conflicting people, you know. And so none of that stuff really threw me. And again, I thought if we could synthesize it into something great, which I think we did. And Rob was a, a crucial part of that also. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, I remember pulling you guys apart at times, you know. <laughs> Physically. And, you know, that, that was sort of my role at times. And then I would go into the room and just like try to write something so that we could kind of have a conversation about it. And things worked out. I mean, let's face it, we had really good stuff to start with. There's a great foundation to start with. And then all these things just fell together. Everybody was on, even like, it's like the 74 Yankees, you know? They might have been fighting, but they were a fucking great team, right. you know? Right. Kept me going and alive. I saw Larry David, who was really like, we're going to talk about him in a minute, which Larry Charles got him on the show. And of all the stars that's ever been on this show, I've never been intimidated by anyone except for Larry, who now I consider a friend and I love to death. But the day he showed up, we, we're going to get into that. I was terrified, but I saw... You were terrified. Well, we'll get into that also because Dylan had to improvise for the first time. But I, I saw Larry David talking about when Seinfeld was picked up and it was similar to Entourage because we only got picked up for seven additional episodes, which is a very small order, which means they didn't really believe in us. Seinfeld was a similar amount of small numbers. And I saw Larry in an interview go, I didn't know anything. So I spent two years trying to figure this script out, 100 drafts, notes from all over the place, this and that. Then they say do seven more. And I woke up at four o'clock in the morning going, I don't have a clue what this show is. I don't have any idea what to write or, or what it is or anything like that. So in the Seinfeld process, in the early days, I'm not comparing us to Seinfeld. Was there any similar mayhem going on behind the scenes there? Yes, there was. First of all, you know, in my role on Entourage, I was often like a peacemaker, you know, mm -hmm. but on Seinfeld, I was more like you. Right. And I was extremely volatile and I would sit behind Larry at every script meeting and I would be loyal enough to Larry that I would be screaming at, you know, Warren Littlefield right. or the Castle Rock guys. And they must have thought I was fucking insane, you know? But Larry also, we both screamed a lot to get our way. And there was a lot of battles in those early days, you know? And again, like Entourage, there was not a lot of confidence in what it was. But what I learned from Larry that I think I imparted to you, which is something that he learned the hard way and I watched and supported, was trust yourself. Nobody has any answers to this, you know? Right. Nobody's right. You have to do it. And if you do it and trust yourself and trust your instincts, it's going to be good. You know, a lot of it's out of your control. And people are constantly trying to quantify creativity, but you can't. You know, how your brain works can't be quantified, you know? Yeah. So you trusted your instincts about the direction of the show. 
And that's the show, you know. And if you had listened to all the other voices, again, like Larry also, heavily, heavily influenced to take other routes than the one that we took. But he resisted. He resisted because he felt like he has to trust himself. What else does he have? And if you fail, at least you fail with your own instincts and not somebody else's. Right. It's really wild to hear that because, by the way, like to, to think of Larry, who I do, it's weird. I haven't seen you in a long time and I still feel like I know you extremely well, but I have never, yeah. I have never seen Larry Charles angry or yelling. And all I remember is Rob and I yelling constantly, <laughs> nonstop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, and it, there was it, some heat. You're getting some heat from the actors too, a little we're, bit too. Well, we're I mean, getting heat a... from everybody. And listen, at the bottom line is there's a lot of people in Hollywood, as Larry knows, insecurity and fear feeds a lot of things. And when you have a shot, especially at that time, HBO was the biggest game in town. And we had a shot that was, you know, ultimately changed all of our lives. I wanted to capitalize on it and I really didn't know how. So it was just going on instinct and trying to go. Larry brings in, I mean, this is for any writers out there and we're going to get into improvisation. This is a really interesting thing. So I I wrote the script for the script and the Sherpa and we have a script and it's done. And I say, because I was always very self-critical, this thing feels light. It just feels like there's not enough happening. So either Rob or Larry says there's a weed drought in LA. I don't remember what. And I say, okay, but this is a done script. I read about it. Okay. So I'm like, how are we going to, how are we going to fit this into a script? And Larry, I swear to God, in like nine minutes, basically jotted down every spot that we could add what ultimately became the best part of the episode into this <laughs> script. And then Larry wrote, I think, on a cocktail napkin again, this Val Kilmer speech. It'd be and great he, to have that cocktail napkin. Oh my God, oh, yeah. it'd be great. Because people love that. And Larry might even still be mad at to me this day because I still shortened it. My obsession was to make this show the quickest, fastest thing possible. And I don't even think I realized how much people were going to freak over this Val Kilmer speech, which is still in there for a good amount, but there's an original take that was probably two minutes longer. And you wouldn't see that on television ever. It was like a Shakespearean monologue, you know? It was awesome. (laughs) But Larry says, what do you think about Val Kilmer for this part? It was like, one of my idols has worked with Dylan. I'm like, I think he'd, I think he'd be awesome. pretty good. If we could get him. <laughs> so tell me about some of the Val. Like you call him up and is he like, what, what is this show or what, what happens there? Well, I, you know, my history with Val was, was uh, just very positive. I had uh, asked him to do this Bob Dylan movie and he came in and did a monologue that we had written for that movie. That's like about seven minutes long. Right. And he was great. And again, great to hang out with. He's like a poetic soul. You you start mm-hmm. to understand him once you spend some time with him. You know, he's got he just has one of those souls that really kind of transcends to a large degree. And I really liked him a lot and admired and respected him. And I look at his work differently now. And I thought he's a guy that will embrace exactly what we're doing here. He doesn't need even the credit. He doesn't need the work. You know what I mean? He likes the creative experience, you right. know? And that's why I often promise people that I, that I work with, and that's a way to, you know, because you don't have money quite often, you at least can give them a creative experience that will be memorable. Work mm-hmm. with cool people, do some cool stuff, 
And he was an easy person, actually, to get, as was everybody, by the way. And, and he Val, was an easy person to get. And Val, know? to this day, a lot of people still don't even know that it was Val. I no, mean, the amount of people... <laughs> right, I posted right, something on yeah. Instagram last week about Val, and they're like, oh my God, that was Val? He was the Sherpa? Yeah. yeah, and I have yeah. this amazing photo of... Because of, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the Sherpa was... He was trying to look a little bit like you. So I have that great picture <laughs> yeah. of the two of you. They have the same beard, and they almost look like brothers, you know? <laughs> I think there may be some truth to that. That's right. So, and then Larry does, you know, the, the greatest thing ever. He gets Larry David to do the show. Yeah. Okay. Which I am like. By the way, Larry David is the only person that we ever had on the show that I was on set and didn't approach. I just, I just, <laughs> I knew I had nothing. I got nothing. By the way, I was in the same boat and now we're going to get Dylan involved here because Larry goes, I got, Larry David's going to do it. Um, he's excited. I don't know if that was true or not, but uh, he's going to do it, <laughs> but there's no script. Now, I was like a stickler for every single comma, every single piece of punctuation. And so is Dylan. Well, more importantly, Dylan yeah. was. And then I got to call no, I, Dylan. I like adding stuff on little bits and pieces. Now you, do. I don't wanna... you did not then. But no, but he's he saying that he wants a framework. Dylan needs I, a yeah, framework. Yeah, I'd like to he know where context. I'm going. You guys didn't context. tell me anything. Well, by the way, I didn't know anything. And, and I wonder if Larry <laughs> re- remembers what happened on the set. Like we basically gave him an idea that he was screaming at Ari about these tickets. And I remember that it was, in my mind, I had a really simple fix to explain to Larry, but I wasn't going near Larry David. I was just going like, Larry, you you take, and I was sitting back and I'm telling you, like, there's no one who's been on this show that I was nervous about, but I was nervous about Larry David. So Larry was talking to him and I'm like, I don't know who I was talking to. I, I think I, I, I have the idea, but you guys were discussing and Larry, I could see he was getting a little like, frustrated because he, no one was telling him what, and I just said, Larry, what, what if, what if you just go over and, um, and I'm real nervous when I say this, I said, what if you just go over and like Ari promised you these tickets and they didn't come. And then you turned on the TV and you saw he was sitting next to Vin Diesel and he's like, Oh, I got it done. (laughs) And then he of course did it. But Dylan and you guys can, can talk a little bit about Larry, how you work with improvisation, which is totally fine with me, by the way, I love improvisation. I always just would say, do one take as written. Do whatever you want and mm-hmm. we'll, whatever's better will work. But I called you up the night before and you were like, where's the script? I'm like, there's no script. Okay. So what, what was, do you remember how you well, were? I said, well, what am I doing? And you go, well, you don't, don't worry about it. Just come <laughs> here. And I was like, what do you mean just come? <laughs> so then you sat me in the scene and you still, so didn't give me anywhere right, to go. So right. I didn't know. Everyone else had a kind of a plan. Yeah. I had no, I, I had no well, idea. What does Johnny Drama want? He wants the work. So I right. just kind of, so, uh, Larry, you remember? <laughs> <laughs> it, I, it worked out great. I mean, I loved it. Yeah. I didn't have to study well, the night before, which was awesome. Too, we built on it, and yes, you know, it's funny, Doug. You're talking about loving every comma, and you know, I, I I relate to that also at a certain point in my life, and certainly when I think of Larry on Seinfeld, I would never have imagined that he would be interested in improv because he was also a meticulous, very very mm. specific writer. Wow, he expected words to be. He was like you in a lot of ways also. Not really all that experience with actors because you heard the voices in your head so clearly that you needed words to be accented and (laughs) punctuated. And so did Larry. And so did Larry. And I learned a lot from Larry about that aspect of things. But by the same token, by the time we came to Entourage, he he didn't feel like memorizing as much. (laughs) It goes back to trusting your instincts. For him and for this show, what they share in common, the honesty, you know, there is an honesty to entourage, to the interactions, to the exchanges. 
when Johnny Drama tries to remind Larry David, you know, if you remember something, we get it. We yeah. get that. That's not about show business anymore. You know what yeah. I mean? That's yeah. about human behavior. And it's a very honest and surprising version of it, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's the thing it shares with Curb, too. The editing becomes a super important part of it also. Mm-hmm. Because you can further structure it in editing if you have enough choices in the shooting, you know? Yeah. And that's something that um, Curb really, the, the, you know, the first cuts of Curb are like an hour long. You know, and it's about shaping that hour into the show, you know. That was very different with us because we shot a lot of oneers. And yes, fortunately, mm-hmm. we had the actors who could deliver it. But when Larry calls you up to do curb, does he say, we're not going with scripts, we're just going with outlines? Or what does he say? Well, I, you know, I feel like I know him well enough and I know what he wants that the outline and everybody around him, I mean, he has kind of a repertory company at this point. Right. So everybody kind of knows what needs to be done, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the outline is sufficient. You know, people know their their roles and they know how to exercise them. And so I think that um, the structure for that is almost like having a script. It really is. Mm-hmm. Because everybody knows that they just have to be what they would be in that situation and it'll be good. You know, when you think about some of the some of the great directors we had, and we had some first run directors that went on to become the biggest directors in television. And you know, as an actor, you always shake your head when it's like, oh man, another angle. Fuck, man, yeah. David Nutter. Remember, he would shoot lots yeah. and lots of coverage. But you know yeah. what? He also had lots of room in the editing room. To Larry's point, to for performance and just like tighter, 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 different lenses, different different options, and yeah. and and it made it a lot easier in the editing room. That's why he's so good. Larry knows. Uh, uh, yeah, because I don't necessarily agree with the, the David Nutter um, methodology either. I mean, I like to hit and run too mm-hmm. because I like to keep things fresh. Yeah. Oh yeah, we well, hated agreed. it. Agreed. We, we hated, hated it. it. But <laughs> yeah, no, that's why he's on Game of Thrones. But by the way, I mean, ten, David ten Masters. <laughs> David Nutter is. I mean, he's a genius and a brilliant shooter, and and Definitely. Game of Thrones, and and I mean, the guy's got like a record of the most picked up pilots ever. My style and my thought, which again, hopefully will evolve if I ever work again. I'm not sure I want to, but <laughs> right. we'll see. But I really liked to do things as realistic and natural and possible. And the way to do that was as little coverage as possible, which did. There were plenty of times it fucked me in the editing room. But if you can count on your actors and you do have a good script, you can get there. But it is a bigger challenge. I was always influenced the way Woody Allen shot a movie. Uh, Martin Scorsese shot a movie. I'm not comparing myself. I get it. It, just, it sounded like you were comparing. I yourself. get it. I get it. I'm not even comparing myself to Kevin you Connolly's directing. You were, you were kind of <laughs> suggesting that you're in the same boat as those guys. But I really wanted the show from the get go. I spoke to uh, about this earlier, but. I went to HBO. I said, I wanted to shoot in widescreen. They told me I was, who the fuck do I think I am? And I'm pretentious. And I was like, Joey is shooting in widescreen on NBC. Everyone's going to have big TVs. And this <laughs> show, which I know you guys see as a little low budget piece of crap, I see as a big, beautiful visual, you know, where we're going to shoot LA in a way that you haven't really seen before. And again, it helped with the walk and talks. That it, also, yeah, it did. But it did help when you had Larry Charles, when you had David Frankel, who directed the pilot, it helped to get those visions really where we wanted them to go and shoot what we wanted, you know? And uh, that's completely different, which I do want to talk to you about this before you go. But like Sasha, you're you're doing, I mean, what's going on there? You're walking into rooms and you have no idea what's going to happen or you have an outline or what? And I'm talking (laughs) Sasha Baron Cohen. I'm talking Borat, the dictator. Yeah. 
every day was different. Some things we could actually, if I had the ability, I would take the AD the night before because I never slept when I was doing that movie. Right. I was way too anxious all the time. It's like, <laughs> how is this going to fucking work? I can't, I can't see it working, you know? So I would go out the night before, like three o'clock in the morning and try to case the location and kind of try to imagine like, okay, we could put the van here so everybody could jump in and we could run away. We'll have 15 minutes before the police are called. Oh you know, I would think about all the logistics, <laughs> even as much as the creativity of the scene. Right. Because the creativity of the scene, once the scene was rolling, you had to hope for the best, you know? Mm. So there was a, a sense of trying to be one step ahead of everybody. But a lot of times you, you just had to accept the reality of the situation. You walk into scenes and this is where you're going to shoot and you're going to make the best of it. And like, see, Entourage, I thought, had an amazing... And you just alluded to this. It had an amazing, unique, and distinctive visual style. You know, it had really nice camera work, great art direction. And what we did was we put these very spontaneous scenes in front of all this very kind of well photographed, good cinematography. Stephen Fearworth and some others. And that Fierberg, juxtaposition yeah. was also great. You know, that really worked as a juxtaposition too. Just back to Sasha for a second. So anyone who's yes. not familiar with those movies and Borat, are you, you're directing these movies. Are you acting? Like, are you almost laughing? Are you fearing for your life during some of these scenes? Like what's going on there? There were times when all, all of those things were true. One of the things that I had to do was meet the, um, the target before Borat arrived. And I would have a story. I had a name. I had a fake ID. And I, you know, cut my hair and wore a sports coat and a nice shirt, sometimes a tie every day (laughs) and looked very professorial. And I would say, you know, we're freelance because we only had a few people on the crew also. So I said, look, I'm a freelance journalist. You know, I was hired for the day. (laughs) And these are my guys. And, you know, I haven't met this guy yet. I think his name is Borat, but I haven't met him. (laughs) Uh, But I understand he doesn't know anything, you know, about America. He's from Kazakhstan. Do you know Kazakhstan? (laughs) And they go, no, I don't know. Okay, Okay, good, good. Um, And, you know, I'd say, yeah, he doesn't know. He doesn't even know what a chair is, you know. And so please be patient with him. Be tolerant (laughs) if he says the wrong thing. You know, he really doesn't mean it. He's a very good person, you know, and like, and then I would usually do something like, if you ever been on TV, you know, you would really, you should do a pilot, you know, I'm going to give you my card <laughs> and afterwards we'll, we'll talk about maybe doing something else, you know, wow. and that, good move. That, that, that's amazing. You should, you should have had behind the scenes going to see your performances on that because that's <laughs> equally amazing to get this stuff going. Yeah. As I said with Larry before, it's it's really living, breathing art. And however you got to the place that you were with me, it you had seemingly lost the anxiety of it, which I still have, sadly, at 52 years old. And I don't know that that's ever going to go away. But, you know, it, 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 it was a great thing. <laughs> anyway, Larry, I really, this was honestly uh, amazing. I really do. I miss you. And uh, I have great memories from our time working together. Maybe someday, somehow we'll do it again. Um, we'll, we'll get a chance to at least hang out in yes. person at some point. But uh, this was really fun. I'm really happy to see you guys. I'm happy to hear you, Kevin. 
And I'm happy to see Kevin and Doug. It's been great, man. Thank yeah. you so much, Thank for you, Larry. Thank you so Thank much, you, Larry. You are the man. We Larry love you. Stay safe, Larry. And just say hello to everybody for me. I'll talk to you later. Be Bye-bye. good. Anyway, that was fantastic. Speaking, seeing Larry Charles again. It's been a, a so while great. and so uh, really brought back a lot of memories uh, and a lot of the stresses of the show that he helped <laughs> iron out and some of a lot of great things. And uh, I, I forgot to tell him one of my favorite lines was a Larry Charles line, which even Broccoli screams when you rip it from the ground, yeah, which I line. thought subtle and genius. And that's what Larry is. So that is it for another episode of Victory, the podcast. I'm Doug Ellen at Mr. Doug Ellen. I'm Kevin Dillon at Kevin Dillon Official Victory. Victory. Satisfaction. No satisfaction.